Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Derek. <laughs> and I'm Ray. I'm Alex Reed. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Mostly Lit. Hello, hello. I mean, you know that that's what they say on the introduction that we now have. Well, yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm reiterating. <laughs> um, today we have an amazing episode for you guys. Uh, we have a very special guest and she's going to introduce herself by way of reading from her brand new novel. So this is the first chapter. It's called Where Do Old Birds Go to Die? She lived in the graveyard like a tree. At dawn she saw the crows off and welcomed the bats home. At dusk she did the opposite. Between shifts, she conferred with the ghosts of vultures that loomed in her high branches. She felt the gentle grip of their talons like an ache in an amputated limb. She gathered they weren't altogether unhappy at having excused themselves and exited from the story. When she first moved in, she endured months of casual cruelty like a tree would, without flinching. She didn't turn to see which small boy had thrown a stone at her, didn't crane her neck to read the insults scratched into her bark. When people called her names, clown without a circus, queen without a palace, she let the hurt blow through her branches like a breeze and used the music of her rustling leaves as balm to ease the pain. It was only after Ziauddin the blind imam who had once led the prayers in the Fatehpuri Masjid befriended her and began to visit her, that the neighborhood decided it was time to leave her in peace. Long ago, a man who knew English told her that her name, written backwards in English, spelt Majnu. In the English version of the story of Layla and Majnu, he said, Majnu was called Romeo and Leila was Juliet. She found that hilarious. You mean I've made a khichdi of their story, she asked. What will they do when they find that Leila may actually be Majnu and Romy was really Julie? The next time he saw her, the man who knew English said he'd made a mistake. 
her name spelled backwards would be Mujna, which wasn't a name and meant nothing at all. To this she said, it doesn't matter, I'm all of them. I'm Rumi and Julie, I'm Leila and Majnu and Mujna, why not? Who says my name is Anjum? I'm not Anjum, I'm Anjuman, I'm a mehfil. I'm a gathering of everybody and nobody, of everything and nothing. Is there anyone else you'd like to invite? Everyone's invited. The man who knew English said it was clever of her to come up with that one. He said he'd never have thought of it himself. She said, how could you have with your standard of Urdu? What do you think? English makes you clever automatically? He laughed. She laughed at his laugh. They shared a filter cigarette. He complained that Will's navy-cut cigarettes were short and stumpy and simply not worth the price. She said she preferred them any day to Foursquare or the very manly Red and White. She didn't remember his name now. Perhaps she never knew it. He was long gone, the man who knew English, to wherever he had to go. And she was living in the graveyard behind the government hospital. For company, she had her steel Godridge Almira in which she kept her music, scratched records and tapes, an old harmonium, her clothes, jewellery, her father's poetry books, her photo albums, and a few press clippings that had survived the fire at the Khabga. She hung the key around her neck on a black thread along with her bent silver toothpick. She slept on a threadbare Persian carpet that she locked up in the day and unrolled between two graves at night. As a private joke, never the same two on consecutive nights. She still smoked, still navy cut. One morning, while she read the newspaper aloud to him, the old imam, who clearly hadn't been listening, asked, affecting a casual air, Is it true that even the Hindus among you are buried, not cremated? Sensing trouble, she prevaricated. True? Is what true? What is truth? Unwilling to be deflected from his line of inquiry, the imam muttered, a mechanical response. Such khuda hai, khuda hi such hai. Truth is God, God is truth. The sort of wisdom that was available on the backs of the painted trucks that roared down the highways. Then he narrowed his blind green eyes and asked in a sly green whisper, Tell me, you people, when you die, where do they bury you? Who bathes the bodies? Who says the prayers? Anjum said nothing for a long time. Then she leaned across and whispered back, untree-like. Imam Sahib, when people speak of colour, red, blue, orange, when they describe the sky at sunset or moonrise during Ramzan, what goes through your mind? Having wounded each other thus deeply, almost mortally, the two sat quietly side by side on someone's sunny grave, hemorrhaging. Eventually, it was Anjum who broke the silence. You tell me, she said. You're the Imam Sahib, not me. 
Where do old birds go to die? Do they fall on us like stones from the sky? Do we stumble on their bodies in the streets? Do you not think that the all-seeing, almighty one who put us on this earth has made proper arrangements to take us away? That night the imam's visit ended earlier than usual. Anjum watched him leave, tap, tap, tapping his way through the graves, his seeing eye cane making music as it encountered the empty booze bottles and discarded syringes that littered his path. She didn't stop him. She knew he'd be back. No matter how elaborate its charade, she recognized loneliness when she saw it. She sensed that in some strange, tangential way, he needed her shade as much as she needed his. And she had learned from experience that need was a warehouse that could accommodate a considerable amount of cruelty. Although Anjum's departure from the Khwabga had been far from cordial, she knew that its dreams and its secrets were not hers alone to betray. So, welcome to the show. <laughs> Writer, activist, booker winner and all-round phenomenal woman, Aaron Dutty Roy. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for coming. We Mind. should add a round of applause. I know, right? When we introduce the <coughs> story, we Some, should just have yeah. like a background <laughs> noise. A sound effect. Like a yeah. <laughs> right. So oh, how's yeah, everybody absolutely. doing? Well, I'm all good. I'm all good. Yeah, how's your week been, Alex? The week's been good. Yeah. The week's been good. Just been up and down, working. Yeah. That's all I can really add. Yeah. Trying to make the moves. Absolutely. I think we should give a shout out to the Nibbies. We went to the Nibbies. Yes. We haven't recorded in a while. We haven't recorded in a while. So we've had various events that have been going on and yeah. we've been to. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much to, to Philip and everyone at the bookseller. Yeah. Um, it was amazing. I mean, I saw I saw Philip Pullman. Philip Pullman was there, and I just got in my feelings. I was yeah. like, oh my god, this is this is my childhood. <laughs> standing right there. It was amazing. Benjamin yeah. Zephaniah was there with Molly Flat and Kate Duvall, and it was good. It was amazing. Yeah. Awesome. So thank you so much to everybody involved. Again, thank you, Philip. Man like Phil. Yeah. Hey, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Ray? I'm I'm good. I'm good. It's been a good week. Um, Relaxing. I'm not feeling too good, actually. I'm a bit poorly. Um, I know. It's because you're working till four in the morning. Not all the time. <laughs> trying, trying to close deals. Um, yeah. But yeah, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit under the weather. But hey, he was trying to get me. That's what I was like, saying earlier. Also, I thought, like, foreign pollen was okay. So I went to uh, <laughs> Lisbon for work. And the way hay fever just grabbed me. Yeah. Like, I was like, you know, when I go to Zanzibar, it never happens. Yeah, it's the oppressor's air. <laughs> I think that's what it is, to be honest. Because I do think it's Europe. European politics. It has to be is Europe. I will go to the Caribbean and like I'll be fine. Yeah. Like, and we live in country, so, <laughs> so I don't know why I don't get it when I go there. You don't really. You don't. No, get I don't get hay fever when yeah, I go. I back. don't get hay fever when I go to um, East Africa as well. Yeah, how strange. You should go to Ghana and see if um, I don't suffer any. from hay fever anyway. Oh, oh lucky. No. I'm how about you? How does it do? You get hay fever? <laughs> no. See. <laughs> anyway, um, how are you, Aaron Dutty? How are you? How's yeah, your stay how's in your London? Week been? Oh well. I just came yesterday evening <clears throat> and I was in Denmark for two days oh, wow. um, because the Ministry of Utmost Happiness just came out in Danish. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was that was nice. But, yeah, Look. before that, I was in Delhi where it's only 43 degrees. Only. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. I complain when it's like 30 degrees here. Yeah. It's too hot. I complain mm. when it's 20 degrees here. <laughs> Like, when it's too, too sticky and then, in when, the city. and then when it's cold we complain that we want it to be no but that was a right. that was a bloody long winter though we did have a that very was long a long winter. winter that winter went all the way up until March 
And I'm just thinking, this mm. is never... Wait, was it March? I did it. Was it? Was there a big snowfall in April? I think we did. I think it was April. Wow, so this is what British people do. We all oh. do sit down and talk, talk about, about the weather. weather. <laughs> <laughs> right. So how many how many languages did you say the book is translated into? Uh, forty six. Wow. Do you get to oversee any any of them? Well, uh, I actually have been. Uh, you know, of a few of those, I think three or four of those forty six are Indian languages. Yeah. So I've been very, uh, very closely involved with the translation into Urdu and mm. Hindi. Mm. They're not yet published in India. The Urdu one is published in Pakistan, but I'm waiting for the Hindi to be ready before yeah. we publish them both together. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, for me, when I wrote the book, I did have a feeling that I should actually say translated from the originals by yeah. Arundhati Roy. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a book that's imagined in many languages. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get quite apprehensive that a translation will lose something that you initially put into it? Well, surely that's one way of looking at it, you know. But for me, we are people who live in translation all the time, you know, because there's so many languages yeah. floating around you. I mean, India has 780 languages, wow. 22 oh official God. and 33 waiting to be made official and so on. So for me, I actually feel um, I'm not a, you know, I'm not, I, I feel thrilled about translations. Yeah. You know, I feel even if, it can't be exact if it can convey the spirit of what the you've message, written. Yeah. Not just the message, but the you know the, the universe that that is being Great. like to me to 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 me a book like this, which is so so close and specific in some ways mm-hmm. to what goes on in India. Yeah, the fact that it actually is something which someone in Denmark or Estonia or England or uh, reads is 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 the most beautiful thing about literature, yeah. you know, because literature is uh, in some ways a very quiet art, you know, the mm. act of writing and the act of reading. Yeah, it's quite, of, yeah, it's quite mm. lonely. They say. Mm. Oh, do you think? It, do well, you find it lonely? No, writing? I mean all these these people in the book sort of moved in with me, so mm. they go where I go. And <laughs> they, they have opinions about everything. Yeah. <laughs> I have to tell them to shut up. <laughs> so, what what are you currently reading? Well, uh, I was reading a lot of Zebald because I'm about to do the Zebald lecture in the British Library on Tuesday. But uh, right now, the last book I read uh, is a book that's just been recently published called Barracoon. Yeah. It's very interesting in the way that it it complicates simple things, you know, mm. uh, for all of us who have been colonized or enslaved. Mm. And we do a lot of the enslavement and colonizing. He talks about... I mean, I think he was the last, uh, the last person to uh, to be able to really tell the story of being uh, caught and sold into slavery, and then go on the slave ship, be taken to the U.S. But what's very disturbing about that book is his account of how they were captured, because they were not captured by white slave traders. They were captured by another African tribe. And he describes how 
they were attacked at dawn while they were still asleep and the attackers were female warriors who actually beheaded everybody oh my god and then transported them to the coast carrying these heads on pikes to terrify people wow and then uh, you know they were sold into uh, sold to these american slave traders and taken across the water but you know that's the truth in india too that many people don't want to face that mm. you know it, it it you know colonization was something which uh, succeeded in the way that it did because the elites of those places colluded with the colonizers yeah, yeah. so that's barracoon by zorinio pastin yeah. yeah what are you reading me i've had the most terrible two weeks of not reading. Mm. I think this is why it's adding to my sadness. Mm. Um, but I've I've picked up Emperor's Babe by Bernadine Evaristo and um, Clarissa gave it to me for my birthday, so thank you, Clarissa. And yeah, I've, I'm going to start reading that, but I've just had a really bad like two weeks of not reading and it's stressing me out because I haven't had time to not read. And Derek just gave me a book right now, actually. This is the actually the book that I'm reading at the moment. Oh, really? Um, yes, A Century of Sense by Lizzie Ostrom. Do you know what? Basically, we have this big conference room in the office up on the seventh floor, and there's books all around it. Yeah. Anytime I'm put in a room with books everywhere <laughs> I start thinking about which books can I take <laughs> so I was just looking around and then I saw that and obviously like I collect perfumes um, and I, I love reading about the scents and the notes and you know and how one layer affects the next layer and then yeah. you know how it works on different people's skin oily skin and whatnot and this is just like basically yeah a history of how scents have defined an error or how an error has defined the scent yeah. how certain people latch on to certain scents and they become you know you know they represent a certain type of person and, yeah. and whatnot so it's really interesting she goes from about i think it's like 1910 have you found your all-round scent because i know you want to my you. signature scent no an all-rounder because <laughs> you said you don't want a signature scent yeah i want a scent that just i can wear like in every season and i just i don't think i'm gonna find one. i've looked but i don't think i'm gonna find one because my mood changes a lot and I find that depending on my mood so when I'm in a good mood I'll spray a perfume on it smells different to when I'm in a, yeah. a bad mood yeah. which obviously I think it's obviously something to do with the pheromones reacting with the chemicals and the perfume and stuff like that so it's really take it to science I, I, I don't know if that's actually true I think that's what's happening you know or oh, some days I might be a bit more oily than yeah. another day and yeah. that definitely affects the yeah. way the perfume sorry I'm just rambling on here but anyway I'm, <laughs> I'm reading yeah Perfume Century of Sense by Lizzie Ostrom perfect what were you reading Alex? You, Alex? oh man I'm back on my my mindfulness tip I'm trying to get grounded basically I went to therapy and then she was like you need to get grounded you're, no, you're like you're all over the place sort of thing so then she was like get back to your is this psychotherapy? yeah okay. and she basically like oh get back to your um, meditation so I was like oh okay so I went to pick up this book called um, The Art of Living by Thich Nhat Hanh oh yes yeah that, yeah. That Clarissa gave it to us so I was reading that and it's quite in there it has like it's just basically kind of outlining life and kind of outlining like why, like he's talking about meditation and you know I was listening to an, a conversation he had with Oprah and he was talking about how he like meditates wherever he goes. Whenever he's talking, he's kind of like present at everything that he yeah. does. And he kind of meditates while he eats, he meditates while he walks, he does all these different things. Mm. And I was just reading like different techniques 
how to meditate and his kind of philosophy on life is really refreshing to see because obviously growing up in this western world why are you looking at me like this i'm listening i'm in, i'm listening <laughs> you're, you're leading in like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, in, I'm interested in what you're saying nah, um but yeah no, like he's really he's interested just because like you know coming from the western moving from this western ideal of like you know you live you die you kind of transcend all these different things mm-hmm. he kind of talks about you know getting rid of singleness singlelessness and being aware that you're you're in coordination with a lot of different things kind of kind of made up this new verb called inter are so like you're into being so you're interacting with a lot of different things at the same time yeah and it's about appreciating all of that those interactions yeah so the art of living is really good and he talks about you know appreciating death what that looks like and it kind of reminded me you know when Mufasa was telling um Simba he's like you know Simba, anything the sun touches is yours. And he talks about like the lions eat the antelope, the antelope die, something, the, the, antelope, the antelope eat the grass, yeah. and then you, the lions die, and all that stuff. Everything's all of life. It's supposed to be profound, though, because like, it just sounds like he's taking common sense things and Yeah, but he's been around for ages. He's what, going on to be. I mean, most profound things but, I mean, are very common. Yeah, sense. yeah, but it's, wrong mm. it's how, you, how you deliver them, and it's how you talk about them. I mean, and, yeah, it's where, yeah, and it's where you're at at a particular time. You know, I read the. I'm so good the, that the you're Dao. back on. You're yeah, back on your... yeah, and you know, like I do the Taoism according to Winnie the Pooh kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of like getting back. Alex says that I'm Piglet in Winnie the Pooh because <laughs> you are. Because <laughs> I get really flustered. You get really flustered, and you just. I know. I've rude. never watched Winnie the Pooh before. You never watched Winnie the Pooh. I, I, I thought it was very boring. I just child. know he likes honey, and Winnie, Winnie like... the Pooh is so simple. Like he's like, you know, all right. So the tree might fall down. What? But it might not fall down. I'm what, not now? Piglet. You are piglet. I can handle my stuff, okay? Yeah, but you... Okay. I, get, I get flustered in the moment. Anyway, yeah, let's... But people will people, be telling you, like... Enough about... <laughs> like, what's going on? Anyway, that's what I'm reading. I'm reading The Art of Living. Perfect. Um, cool. So, yeah. Okay, guys. So, anyway, just basically <laughs> diving into the episode, the main topic. We're obviously joined by the amazing Aaron Dutty Roy. So, just getting straight into it. Like, you wrote The God of Small Things. You won the booker. You sold, like... A zillion copies of the book and then you vanished from fiction <laughs> um so Vix, i just wanted to know like why were you away for so long what happened well i was somewhere else yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i didn't vanish but um well you know basically i never thought of myself as somebody who has to be a fiction writing factory, you know, mm. just because I won the Booker Prize, I wasn't going to write, you know, the son of the god of small things and the <laughs> god of small things too. Yeah. I remember right then, I think the very day that the Booker thing happened and people were asking me, I said, I don't know, you know, uh, I'll write another novel when I have another novel to write. I just, it's not necessary to, it's not a careerist thing for me, mm. you know. But then also what happened was that that was in 97 and I went back, uh, I mean, I was didn't go back, I, I was at, in India mm. and very soon after that, things began to change very fast there. Uh, just within a few months, uh, a very right-wing Hindu nationalist government came to power and they did a series of nuclear tests and that sort of changed the the climate, the language, the there was a sort of uh, outpouring of this this kind of militant nationalism that terrified me, and I was on the cover of every magazine. I was the sort of poster girl of of this new aggressive India, and I uh, wasn't willing to be that person. So I 
I wrote an essay called The End of Imagination, mm. talking oh, wow. about how the how we you know how we have lost the imagination of what we could have been, you know. And uh, I, in in that essay, I said, well, if it's, I, I I was talking about why nuclear weapons it affects the minds of people who 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 belong to those countries, you know. Mm-hmm. And I said, if it's anti-Hindu and anti-Indian to have a nuclear weapon implanted in my brain, then I secede. Mm-hmm. And of course, that didn't go down very well there. And I, uh, but it it sent me on a journey of. Many many years, twenty years, really, traveling, writing, arguing, intervening. So those twenty years were years of writing essays, which were mm. urgent and political. And somewhere along the way, these folks in the ministry began to drop in on me, and then they just moved in on me, mm. and uh, another novel began to build up. Yeah. So. I hadn't uh, vanished. I was just doing something else. Enough, yeah. yeah. So I was going to ask you then, actually, mm. because of you did a lot of political writing mm. during that, you know, that 20 year period. Would you say that then political writing, you know, writing essays or journalism is your first love and then fiction comes afterwards? No, no. Fiction is my first love. OK. Without Thank a doubt. <laughs> without, without a doubt. Fiction is my first love. But. It's not a love that I would like to utilize in any way. It's, it's something like, to me, fiction is prayer, you know. Fic- fiction is so beautiful. And it's a, fiction is the construction of a universe. It's not an argument. It's not yeah. urgent for me in any way. And, um, you know, like I was saying before, for me, every time I have written fiction, which is only twice, I really have... Because of the complexity of of language uh, in in the place that I live in, I don't have. It's not like I can just reach out to a language and write, use it to write a story. It's almost like you have to make it because the God of Small Things was imagined uh, in Malayalam and English. I grew up in the south of India, you know, where the Malayalam is spoken. Yeah. The ministry in, in, in many other languages, and because it's in Delhi through which all these rivers of languages flow. So language, the language of a novel is secret at first, and then it becomes public, you know. Mm-hmm. The language of my essays is public and urgent. So uh, I have a very different, I am a very different person when I'm writing fiction. It's like I can dance, you know, and yeah. when I'm writing the essays, it's, 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 it's war. It's, it's like, like I'm furious. I'm trying to break open a space that's closing down, a consensus that's closing down, especially on the most vulnerable people. You know? yeah. So it's a different kind of seriousness that you approach yeah. when you approach yeah. a nonfiction. Yeah. But, but in fiction... I have the full spectrum of, you know, whimsical. You can do, you can do. I mean, I I play a lot, I play around a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I think I was I was reading something in the Guardian. This guy called Alex Clark said that um, the unforthcoming writing of somebody maybe who who hasn't written in a while is even more intense and frightening for the reader than it is the creator of that piece of work. Did you feel when you were writing the ministry, oh God, I haven't written in 20 years, what are they going to think? Or was it a very solitary thing? Like, let me just concentrate on my craft. I don't really care what 
the readers are going to think about it. No, I mean, I, I, I'm I, peculiarly unpressured, you know, when I write. Mm-hmm. Like, I was not pressured to write another book after The God of Small Things. And I'm a person of great instinct. So I can't put myself in the position of what a reader might think. Yeah. And, and the thing is that if I was the person who was worried about that... I would not have been able to write a single one of my political essays, you know, because I was standing against consensus all the yeah. time. And and I think it's respectful to readers to think that they're not they're not wanting you to give them what they think. Mm. They they you know they they are looking for a writer to know what that writer thinks. Yeah. So it's not I'm not confecting a product that. I want to, in fact, I think I have spoken about this quite often, but I think that, uh, you know, when people refer to me or call me a writer activist, I always ask them, why do, why do I have to have an extra profession <laughs> when all I've done is write different kinds of things? Because writers are being commodified. Mm. Fiction is being domesticated into a kind of product, you know, mm. whereas uh, I, I mean, to me now, especially in a, in a time like this in India, where there is a kind of majoritarian bullying impulse, where where minorities are being ghettoized, people are being lynched on the streets, the writer is that person who who needs to be able to stand alone and say, "I denounce this," even if it makes me unpopular. I denounce this, you know. Yeah. So, so you think that's your responsibility? I don't think it's my responsibility, but I think it, it's the luxury that writers have, you know, that we're not supposed to be courting approval or trying to be popular or live yeah. live uh, between literature festivals and bestseller lists, <laughs> you know. So then, uh, you know, you said fiction is like you dancing and your political writing. Is this book like a war dance then? Do you kind of shrink away from people who may call this a political novel? Well, I don't, I mean, I just think that, again, um, I'm unafraid of writing about politics in a novel. The God of Small Things was a very political yeah. novel. You know, I mean, I was taken to court a criminal case for corrupting public morality. Oh, my which God. Which went on wow. Oh, yeah, I read about that. Yeah. I was going to ask you. Yeah. I was like, oh, God, how, wow. how did you cope with that? Socrates. So, so I don't yeah. think that, I don't think that actually anything can be not political, you know. If you're writing, say you were a writer in apartheid South Africa and you were. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Writing as if apartheid didn't exist. That would be very political. Isn't that political, you know? So to not write politically is to take some complicated yoga posture, you know, and close your eyes and turn around. (laughs) For me, as a writer... What I want to do is to be able to write about anything, anything with the same facility, you know, to write about violence and intimacy and love and sex and death and fun and poetry with the same unblinking gaze or the same tender to be able to write about tenderness and war in the same way, to be, be able to write something public and something private. To me, not to just hit one perfect note in a novel is important. It's, you know, the ability to to move through a range of things. So when I was reading it, Aftab, his dad, when he found out that he was a hemophrodite. Intersex. Intersex. Um, Hijra. There we go. Hijra, yeah. <laughs> and there was a significant part in which... He, he was like, okay, uh, now I know what to do. I'll save up to get surgery or something. And then he, he said something like, oh, um, now I want, to, what I possibly can do is teach him more like these manly ways. And the first thing he said I after that this. line I he's gonna was, say this. I'll teach him poetry or something along those lines. Mm. And I was like, I, that really shocked me because somehow in my warped brain I had gendered poetry to be something that was very feminine and so the line said something along the lines of I'll teach him poetry and stop and and ensure that he doesn't sing um so what was no there's a there are certain there are there are certain kinds of uh, music, yeah. you know, like he says, you stop singing tumri, yeah, which like, is the saw what... so, the kind of genre yeah. of singing which the courtesans would do. Oh, I see. But you can sing the barakhyal, which oh, is okay. you know, yeah. But but the poetry is yeah. is I was interesting. Because I was like, in your in your mind, is poetry something? It shouldn't be gendered at all. But I thought that was something quite interesting for you to put, especially after talking about manhood. Well, you see, the thing is that uh, poetry, especially the kind of poetry that Mulakat Ali, who is uh, Anjum's father, knows, all that poetry is very male poetry, you know, because it is poetry in Urdu and Persian at a time when women were not even allowed to write, you know, so... Uh, he is a hakim, mm-hmm. a doctor who prescribes poetry like <laughs> medicine to his which I thought was his really interesting. Yeah, and and so certainly, uh, especially in that world, mm-hmm. poetry is not in, not in the least bit gendered. At g- all, yeah. Well, it is gendered. If it is gendered, it's gendered in, in a, a very man, masculine yeah. way. You okay. know. Yeah. So, uh, and there's a long history, uh, which I'll be actually speaking about in my lecture on Tuesday, about this language Mm -hmm. and how 
It's a language which was born on the streets of India, but a mixture of a language called Kariboli and mm-hmm. Persian. And the history of how initially poetry was in Persian, then it became Urdu, which mm-hmm. is, of course, the language that Anjum and all, the, all yeah. of them speak. I mean, of course, you, you know that uh, there, there is that in the book when Aftab is born yeah. and his mother, who speaks Urdu, uh, knows that everything in Urdu, whether it's a glass or a book or a pencil or a musical instrument, has a gender. And she's at a loss because her baby, she doesn't know what is his gender. But when we were translating the book into Urdu, it was very interesting. My trans- I had a very brilliant and beautiful Urdu translator. And then we we realized that there isn't any real word for vagina in Urdu. <laughs> it is called sharam, uh, Aurat ki sharamga, which means the woman's place of shame. Oh, no. Yeah, so we mm. were... And then when I was in Denmark, I was talking to someone about this, and, and they have something very similar in Danish. Mm. You know, so a, a book a book about a body in which a, the body is an important thing, it brings out a lot of scary stuff in languages. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was going to ask though, because I was going to ask about perspective then, because obviously when you're bringing in these amazing characters, what revealed itself to you through creating these characters? Like, what kind of what did you have to confront with them? The, the thing is that, as I said, I am a writer mm. of of instinct, you know, and it really felt like they were just arriving in not moving out of my house. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the things that that did really when I'm writing, while I'm writing, I'm absolutely incoherent. If someone asks me, what are you doing? And I would try to say it, I'd sound like a cretin, you know. <laughs> it's only after the book is written that I, I need a bit of time and then I can start thinking about it. And uh, one of the things that is very clear to me now, and it's obviously because of my own background, that uh, in India, you know, um, people who go to India, they think that this is a land of anarchy and chaos and, you know, Bollywood and all that stuff. There is absolutely no anarchy in Indian society. It is a society. The anarchy is in the traffic, but okay. society, <laughs> society lives in this iron grid of caste, of ethnicity, of hierarchy, yeah. you know, and in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, all the characters actually are sort of off-grid. The, the grid runs through them. The, the, there are incendiary borders. And not one sometimes. Like, for example, Anjum, she has the border of gender running through her. Mm-hmm. But she's also a Shia Muslim born in the old city of Delhi. And that is a more dangerous identity in India today because of Hindu nationalism. So she gets caught up in the 2002 massacre that takes place in Gujarat because she's a Muslim, you know, and she escapes while everyone else is slaughtered because Mm. she's a hijra. Hijra being uh, uh, the Urdu word for this body with the holy soul that's trapped. Mm. And the Hindu uh, mass, the people who are doing the butchery there, they think that to kill a hijra brings you bad luck. Mm. So she survives. You know, but the other characters too, like there's a character who calls himself Saddam Hussein. (laughs) And he belongs to a 
cast, an untouchable cast, who uh-huh. are called Chamars, Skinners. And he too watches his father being beaten to death by a mob. Uh, all of these incidents, by the way, really happened, you know. And so Saddam, uh, so his name is Dayachand, and he decides to renounce Hinduism and become a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And he calls himself Saddam Hussein because there's a video <laughs> of Saddam Hussein being hanged, and yeah. he's very impressed by the by the dignity he shows in death, you know. Mm-hmm. So he has that border of caste and conversion, which is incendiary in India, starting from the 19th century, late 19th century. It's a very big political theme. Tilotama, one of the other major characters, she too has that ambiguous border of caste. And mm-hmm. and then there are, I mean, it's not as sometimes people make it out to be a book about dropouts. It's not, you know. <laughs> so you have one of the major characters is 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 a person who... It's called Biplov Dasgupta, but his name is Garson Hobart because that's the name of a character he plays in a play. And he belongs to a very elite intelligence service. And he's really part of him is the state, you know, the old Indian Nehruvian state. And part of him is this thwarted, drunken lover. (laughs) So all of them have these borders running through them. And through that, they sort of throw a light on the grid. So to understand how, and people who say that books are can be divided into political and non-political, yeah. really the point is, as all of us know, politics kicks the damn door down in the middle of the night. In, it invades your personal space, you know. It's only a great luxury that people who can act as if it doesn't exist in their life. Also, so... Some of the things that you cover in the book, like so the selling of the land of the indigenous people, taking what's rightfully there. So us being of like Afro-Caribbean um, origin, like we can obviously relate to that. So I wanted to ask, when you were writing the book, was there, was it kind of like an Indian audience you had in mind when you was writing it? Or would, would you writing it maybe feeling like this is something that's just universal that everybody would have you know, had to confront maybe with their ancestors or in their current life situation? Well, when I was writing it, I didn't have any audience in mind, you know. Mm. I was just writing it. I was just trying to construct this universe. And I feel like even when I was writing The God of Small Things, you know, how could I know that it would be a book where my Estonian, uh, a person in Estonia comes and says it was about my childhood. I think uh, you never know. But I do believe that the beautiful thing about literature is if you... If you're just very still and you don't try and do things to attract audiences or, you know, that's not the point. You know, for me, the point was it was an experiment, the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. I I, I wanted to create a book that sort of broke open this idea that, oh, you know, you have a, a few characters and a background and then you try to tell some story. But here it was like, can a can a novel be like a city? Can it be as complex? Can it have those main roads and side roads? And can you just stop by and smoke a cigarette with this cobbler or this guard yeah. and say, hey, where did you come from? And what's the, what's your story? And because for me, 20 years of the traveling and writing, I mean, like, like you were talking about the indigenous, uh, the land grab, mm. you know, I think today in London, 
there is a protest against a mining company called Vedanta, which is listed on the London Stock Exchange that just were, I mean, there were protests against it in India and seven, 13 people were killed. It happens to also be the great sponsor of the great Jaipur Literature Festival and so on. This is how these oh, wow. companies operate. Yeah. But I actually went in to the forest some years ago and spent uh, a few weeks with the guerrillas who are fighting uh, these big infrastructure projects, mining companies. The, the, the forests are flooded with paramilitary. Half the guerrilla army are women. So one of the characters who writes a letter to, to, to Delhi at the end of the book, Comrade Revati, I know many like her, you know, and I, I wrote a little, a little book called Walking with the Comrades after coming out of spending those days and nights in the forest with them. Mm. So for me, it's really how layered this, this world is, you know, that I live in and have written in. And I do believe that Ultimately, literature, if it is done with care and love, does my story and yours will meet somewhere, mm. you know? In terms of the political activism that you do and the work, the nonfiction that you write and the essays that you write, when you write them, is there a certain message that is not literary but one that warrants action that you'd want to see from them? So is it a matter of your writing just because you want the world to know that I don't agree with this? Or do you want to see action? Immediately. When I write the nonfiction, there's no ambiguity about that. Yeah. I, I mean, something is happening then and now, and this needs to be done now. Mm -hmm. You know, so when the nonfiction is collected into essays and it's read in universities, mm -hmm. the one thing they don't get probably is what was happening at the time when this essay needed to be written. Yeah. For example, when I went into the forest uh, with with the uh, indigenous yeah. guerrillas fighting, called, they call themselves the Maoist Party. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went in because the government had announced what was called Operation Green Hunt. Mm -hmm. They had armed paramilitary going through the forest they were burning down villages. There were armed vigilante armies of these indigenous people, you know, just the same as I was saying in yeah. Barracoon. So people are being pitted against people, meaning hundreds of villages were being burnt. Hundreds of thousands of people were being pushed out of their homes. The idea was to scare them into leaving so the land could be taken over. And on the TV channels and the media, many of which are owned by my co-owned, you know, by mining companies. So mm -hmm. there's only one message going out. These are terrorists. The poorest people in the country are terrorists, mm -hmm. you know. So I went in to say, hey, look, these are these people. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we also the land of Mahatma Gandhi. So everyone on TV is proposing why aren't they nonviolent in their resistance? I said, you tell me if mm. there's a village four days walk from the main road and it's surrounded by a thousand paramilitary and the women are being burnt and killed, which form of nonviolence are you advocating? They're already starving. They can't go on a hunger strike. Yeah. So why are you preaching to them what they need to do? You know, so it was it was very, very urgent. Yeah. And almost each of those essays has been urgent and has been asking for something to happen right then. Yeah. 
that's very unlike the fiction. It's a good question because I've written a few things and I've done a few workshops on like reading and writing as a way of healing. Wanted to know what you thought about art and writing and poetry as psychological healing, psychological traumas and wounds. Do you th- how do you think that approach can help those kind of um, psychological traumas? Well, you know, I think that any way of being able to express mm. what you're thinking is a form of healing. If you can close the gap between language and thought or music and thought, mm-hmm. or painting and thought, or architecture and thought. If you can close that gap, or the narrow it at least, it's a form of healing, you know. So I actually have a, a very, uh, very dear, f- she used to be a very dear friend of mine, and she's very bright, very, very intelligent, but just can't translate that thinking, that analysis, that brilliance into any kind of release into a film into and 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 actually she uh, you know she's she's she lost her her, her sanity in some ways because mm. of this when i think about her i feel like this is someone who's who's permanently pregnant but can't have the baby you know mm. and it's it's wow. painful it's painful to mm. see so i think every form of being able to make art, regardless of whether it's successful or not, fundamentally to you, that you feel, I have expressed what I want to express. Mm-hmm. Whether someone reads it, buys it, hears it, is a separate matter. You know, I'm not talking about success or fame or anything, but I, I feel it. Whether it's in writing my fiction or nonfiction, like there's a unrest in my body until... I feel like, okay, now I, I've, done, I've, I've said what yeah. I wanted to say, you know. Mm. Well, just to close up, thank you, Aaron Dutty. So that's the Ministry of Utmost Happiness that's out in paperback. Um, now, moving on to Mosey Flicks. Oh, my God. So I love Wait, 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 wait. This film. Wait. <laughs> wait, yeah. Let's, okay, wait, let's wait. Um, wait, wait, what? Why we, need to, we need to tell... Okay, great, guys. We, we watched, we watched um, Spielberg's <laughs> movie called The Post. It came out, I believe, last year. It came out last year. Um, featuring <laughs> Hanks, Street. Wahlberg's in it. No, it's not Wahlberg. I, I, I actually thought Wahlberg was in it. No, it's not Wahlberg. Because I was like, you know, there's two people. You're gonna say look, Matt Damon. Damon. That's no, it. it's not Matt Damon. No, it's Matt Damon. not. It looks like. Oh, yeah, it looks it? like. But it's not Matt Damon. <laughs> Who is it? This is the guy from US Calistar, the episode of Black is it, is Mirror. It, is that him? It's him. Oh, it's but yeah, Matt it's Damon, called the Post, it's guys, and it's essentially about <laughs> the Washington Post had uh, Meryl Streep's character. I think her name was like Margaret something. Sounds about right. Yeah, and um, she <laughs> was basically she's like the publisher of, of the, the Washington Post when it was just quite small, mm. not as big as we see it now. But she's taking this company public, but at the same time she's trying to catch up with the Times in unraveling this sort of political secrets that have been um, undercover for like years and also like maybe three, four different administrations mm. um, of US politics mm-hmm. and US presidents. And it's just, it's basically Main, mainly that Mainly focusing on the Vietnam War, basically, yes. documents. The Pentagon and, Papers. And yeah, so I really liked it, but let's just go yes, to you guys. Wait. Let's see what you guys think. I, let's ask Aaron Dutty what Why did you first. pick yeah. this film? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like it. You didn't? No. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. It was not about what's in the film yeah. so much as what's not in it. 
So actually, the person who took the Pentagon Papers out of the Rand Corporation was mm. Daniel Ellsberg. He's somebody who I know very well, actually, a very close friend of mine. And uh, so I know this story. <laughs> And also recently I watched this series called The Vietnam War, yeah. you know, the documentary series. So what's very interesting about The Post is this yet another film about how America actually won the <laughs> Vietnam War, you know. So I was just look, I was looking at it having, you know... Learned look, the history. And, yeah, 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 yeah. So... So never mind the North Vietnamese, you know, who about three million or four million were killed. Yeah. Never mind the South Vietnamese who were fed to the fire. Never mind the American soldiers yeah. who eventually revolted. Never mind the American protesters who were fantastic, you know, mm -hmm. at the time of the Vietnam yeah. protests. It was, I'm seen as someone who's a critic of American imperialism, which mm -hmm. I am, but I've always said that, you know, India hasn't ever had a single conscientious objector. Mm -hmm. But here you had these really brave people. In the post, the film, those people are made to look like some cretins, you know, some hippies. Some hippies, some they even dress like hippies as well. And looking really idiotic. Then you have Daniel Ellsberg, who, if you read his memoirs, tells you how... The person who really inspired him to believe that this was an immoral war was his partner and now wife, Patricia. She's written out of it. Mm. So ultimately, the hero of yeah. the Vietnam War that. is a white American heiress <laughs> who owned the Washington <laughs> Post. Oh my God. So, so for me, it was just another in this series of how you tell a story by leaving out everything except mm. what suits you, you know. And it was uh, very, very disturbing. I and mean, this is not talking, I'm not talking about the performances and yeah. all that separate, but it's just such it's an nasty. incredible political maneuver. And um, there's a book by a Vietnamese author who, it's called The Sympathizer, mm. you know, and he t he has this really savage passage about apocalypse now and how it has no Vietnamese in it, you know. Mm. So the war, the Vietnamese war, won eventually by American capitalism, mm. you know. it's it, This is why I was... I was watching it in shock. Like, are you really serious, you know, mm. about this? The opening scenes just had a few hokey kind of, uh, you know, battle situations. Mm. Yeah. And then, and then it moves into this story that really matters, you mm. know, the, the moral dilemmas of this of white heiress, you know, and who does the right thing. <laughs> and the American courts move in and mm. everything is wonderful, you know. So, yeah, that oh. was... <laughs> I mean, now I know the history. I'm just like... <laughs> it just shattered your whole... But I know, and now I'm like... Yeah. Oh. See it again. I watch it again, watch but it again. I love... Like, love the I performance. love the performance. Like, mm. I thought, thought Streep and Hanks, like, the way they bounced off each other, mm. and I think she, the subtlety of her feeling quite incapable of doing what she can in a room full of so, white so men. So that was, uh, you know, I was thinking, okay, that was that was something important, you yeah. know, that. But then I thought, but look at the other woman, you know, yeah. who was just written out of it. Yeah. The the woman who actually uh, made Ellsberg. And, and that story of taking the Pentagon so Papers out is an incredible film. story. Yeah. I mean, they have made a documentary about oh, them. Okay. And, and uh, the trial that... Daniel Ellsberg and, and I actually uh, went with uh, 
You know, I, of course, I grew up in Kerala, which yeah. was, you know, very similar to Vietnam. We also had rivers and rice fields yeah. and communists, and so there was a great <laughs> sense of sympathy with the with 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 what was going on. Yeah. But a couple of years ago, Dan Dan Ellsberg and I and John Cusack mm. went to Moscow and met. Edward Snowden, who's, I mean, Daniel Ellsberg was the El- Edward Snowden yeah. of the oh, wow. 70s, you know. So I know quite a lot about this, uh, you know, just personally yeah. about what Dan went through well, and things. So I was just, and he's just an extra in the film, you know. Is this something that Spielberg does a lot then? Because he, mm. when I watched Lincoln, it I is. thought he, he's, whole, he's written a lot of things out of Lincoln's legacy. Like he made out as if to say Lincoln's main goal was to emancipate the slaves but that's not yeah it is Do you know you're what I mean? absolutely right yeah. it's yeah. a pattern i think he just probably takes big events and wants Translate to, am- and wants to, am- and wants to amplify them for his art and the so thing is in, in, away with the bad quality in america whether you're a republican <laughs> or a democrat i mean you're still capable of doing quite underhand oh, yeah, things absolutely. you know what I mean? it's just more so seeing where he, if he does have an agenda, mm. is it to favour a political party everyone, or is it just for no, his own everyone, every, everyone has an agenda which mm. goes much deeper than political parties, mm. you know. Mm. I mean, this is much deeper than political parties, you know. Mm. It's so amazing how you can just wipe out history. I mean, look at Robert McNamara. You know, he was the person who managed the bombing of Tokyo in the mm. Second World War, where 80,000 people were killed overnight. Then he was the head of Ford. Then he was the chief, the defense secretary in the Vietnam War. Mm. I mean, the post is about all his lies. Yeah. And then he became the head of the World Bank to, to deal with world poverty, mm-hmm. you know. When I watch those films, I always I tend to miss the point a lot of the time. <laughs> because I tend to, like, focus on things that just don't, don't need to be focused on. So like, there's a scene when um, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks are sitting in the restaurant. Yeah, and, I got, yeah. and I got really, like... So yeah, I was listening to their dialogue. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, great. Streep and Hanks, this is amazing. They're talking, blah, 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 blah. Then I was thinking... Why are there men smoking in the background? What would that life have been like? Just being in a restaurant and everybody smoking. Yeah, that was just, like, and then spoken got banned. Yeah, too yeah, long yeah, ago. yeah, it wasn't too long ago. But then you just start. To, I started to kind of like my mind started to wonder, like, what would what was that like? Like, imagine you used to go out every day. No, we were sm- not. Uh, nowadays, my I think what is going on with mm. all of us is a is what I call micro fascism. Right, they oh, wow. convo- they, now they control you where you can smoke, where you can't smoke, yeah. where you'll be filmed, where you'll be photographed, yeah. what you're doing on the street, yeah. what you're doing on the net. Everything is, you know, all of us, like the more we tattoo ourselves and the cooler we feel, actually, the more we are controlled, mm. you know, mm. that freedom is gone. And I was very sad in, in the post to see how the protesters had been just turned into some you know, cretins, because mm. that America burned because of that war. It was an incredible act of resistance, which people like us just talk about. Yeah. Yeah. It brought the establishment down. So the journalists, I yeah. mean, you know, Watergate. Yes, I love the end of the movie where he's like, there's been a break-in. And you know, that's the beginning <laughs> of the Watergate <laughs> scandal. I love that bit. Mm. I thought that was amazing. What was that film with Dustin Hoffman? Which one? All the presidents, all the presidents' men. men. Yeah. So it kind of leads into that yeah. story, yeah. yeah, and that's a crazy oh. story because obviously the Washington Post stuff, and yeah. it was really weird. Like you know when he said, "Oh, take this file and don't walk." If you were to say something to someone like of our age now, and they gave it to us and say, "Don't walk, don't there, run," there's you'd be a, like, there's I don't, obviously. A, there's a very sad thing that has happened in India in connection with the media just now, mm-hmm. you know, which is that 
a journalist, not very well-known journalist, sort of disguised himself as a Hindu right-wing guy. And he did a secret camera sting operation on 136 media outlets, the biggest, the owners of the biggest, basically offering them money to, to do propaganda, to buy news, buy editorials, and so on, to favor the Hindu right and to trash the opposition. And except for two, all of them said yes. That's the media today. Speaking of media, Ray, have you got any issues for us today? Oh, not an issue. But obviously it's been out already. You guys already know that um, Michelle Obama has a book coming out called Becoming, which kind of chronicles her childhood um, growing up in South Chicago, going Mm. to Princeton University. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited about it. And I just wanted to share my excitement with you guys. The internet was shaking, man. Yeah. And her cover has been released. And she's just like, you know, flawless. Her presence has, I mean, I think done well for a lot of other black women. Um, (laughs) Obviously Obama has written his first memoir, um, Oh, Dreams, Dreams of, of My Father, father. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think and that he has hope. another one um, coming in He's written too. that as well. But yeah, I'm really excited. And uh, yeah, that book is coming out in November, I think. It's going to be huge. Yeah. It's I wonder be. how it will do in the UK. Yeah. Oh, I think it will be... Actually, yeah, how will it do it. in the UK? Well, it doesn't matter. We'll see, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so we've come to the end of the show. No, I'd like to no. thank you once again, Aaron Dutty, for coming on and joining us. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. You could have been anywhere in the world. I know, I know. I know. <laughs> could have, but you're I, here. So thank I you. couldn't have. That's that's uh, Leela. I sh- I'm, I'm meant to be here, so I'm here. Good, oh, good, yeah. thank you. Oh, thank Great. You so and so the Ministry of Utmost Happiness is now out in paperback. Yeah, please go get it, guys. I was going to say, where can they find you? But they'll just find you in Waterstones. And <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, because why? Thank you, Tony. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Great review. Absolutely. Follow us at Mostly Lit on Twitter, Mostly Lit Pod on Instagram, and check out our website, mostly-lit.com. Um, we will be at the Roundhouse oh, on yes. June the 17th. Oh, the Last Word Festival. The Last Word Festival. So all the tickets and information will be on our website. Um, it's Father's Day, so make it an evening out. Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening and we will see you guys next week. All right, bye. Yes, thanks, bye. bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.